right. Well, open your Bibles, as Jack said, to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9. So I went to the ATM the other day with one of my younger kids, and it was for them a magical experience. <laughs> we got to Wawa, and they asked why we were there, and I said, well, I needed some cash. Their eyes got big. How do you get cash? You know, I said, well, come on, I'll show you, you know. So, so we walk into Wawa, and we come up to the ATM, and I, I pull out this little blue piece of plastic out of my wallet and, and stick it in, and I, and I put the code in, and then some noises and some beeps, and then 20, 40, 60, 80, $100 came out of the ATM. And my, my kid's eyes are just like, wow, how do I get one of those blue cards? Like this, this is fantastic. <laughs> now, the lesson may have been slightly oversimplified because I, I don't think we really went into the reality that you, you really should have money in an account somewhere that you're drawing on. You know, there is that, there's that behind-the-scenes reality. This isn't like where cash grows. Um, however, when you do have, like, your money in a bank vault, and I'm not convinced that there's any money in any bank vaults anymore. I don't, I don't really know how this works, but, you know, we'll just say. Your money's in a bank vault somewhere. How do you get it? Well, this little... This little card really is sort of the key. You take it up to a machine, put it in, and you can have access to all of your treasure, however much, <laughs> however much that might be. You can access what you have through it. Well, this morning, Daniel chapter 9, we're going to consider the promises of God revealed in this chapter. And we, we could think of the promises of God as, as sort of a treasure vault of God's promises and goodness intended for his people a, a bank vault the promises of god are, are wonderful first uh, second peter 1 4 says that he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that is a great little phrase that god's pre promises are precious and very great and indeed they are in this chapter with with god's promises we have all that we need we have all that we need in in this life, we have all that we need in the next life. These are God's riches for his people. So yes, we're going to consider the, the riches of the promises of God in Daniel 9. But how do we access those? Where's the ATM card? Whereby we can draw upon the riches of heaven here on earth. What, is that, what does that look like? I think that's a good question for us to have as we consider God's promises in Daniel 9. So, so we're going to begin reading, and I'll just tell you uh, that the heart of the chapter is in the last four verses of the chapter. So what I'm going to do, we're going we're to read the, the beginning uh, 19 verses together first to, to get the context of, of what we're talking about. And the context is Daniel praying to God and pleading with God. So follow along with me, if you will. Book of Daniel, chapter 9. I'll begin in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asarius, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word 
of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. God's word. 
The year is 539 B.C. And Daniel is an old man. It's the first year of the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. It's been at least 60 years since Daniel was taken captive originally and brought to Babylon. And now Babylon has fallen and Persia has risen. And with that empire change, it gets Daniel thinking. How long is this going on? How long is this going to endure? He sees the history that they're walking through in theological terms. God is judging His people for their sin. That's why this happened to Jerusalem. How much longer does this need to go on? Well, he has a kind of a memory of God's Word. And so he goes and finds the scroll and he begins to do a Bible study to find out the answer. And he comes across Jeremiah 25.11 that says, predicting all of this, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And he realizes that the greater part of those 70 years is up. And based upon that, he begins to cry out to God for mercy. And his prayer is one of repentance. It is a model of repentance. He comes before the Lord in sackcloth and ashes with fasting. And he cries out, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have done wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and your rules. We have sinned. And what happened to us is your justice. You are righteous. To you is, is righteousness. To us is open shame for what we have done. Your punishment is right and good. And we have all participated. Did you hear those verses? We've all participated. The kings and the princes and the generations before us and the generations today still won't turn around and forsake their iniquities and cry out to the Lord for forgiveness. So I'm crying out on behalf of my people. Lord, forgive us and have mercy. He's repenting on behalf of all of the people to, of God. He, he appeals for mercy. He appeals for forgiveness. And it kind of reaches a crescendo in the last paragraph where we see how Daniel bases this plea. Because, because the first long bit of that prayer is all about the sin of the people. And that, that should leave Daniel hopeless if all that, that's all that there is. God is just. The people are sinful. So we should expect more justice. More punishment. But Daniel shifts from a focus on sin to a focus on God. And he says, for your sake, O oh Lord. For your sake, forgive us. Not because of our righteousness. But for your name's sake. Oh Lord. It comes to an end in verse 19. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. It goes like this. God, we deserved it. Yes, we deserve it. And yet now, as we're scattered among the nations, as Jerusalem lays desolate, your name lays desolate. Your name is spoken of poorly among the nations. Because what kind of God is defeated by all the gods of Babylon and all the gods of Persia? 
God, for your name's sake, make your name great again and restore your people for your glory and for your honor. So he cries out to God. Now, before we move on to the rest of the chapter, I, wanna, I want us to have the historic situation clearly in mind, what Daniel is asking for. Right? So right now, the people of God are, are still in Babylon, now ruled by the Persians. They've been scattered throughout the empire. They're not even living in or around Jerusalem. The, the city of Jerusalem, its walls have been broken down. It's a defeated, desolate place. The temple was destroyed. And so Daniel prays that God would bring the people back from the four corners of the empire back to Jerusalem. That he would rebuild the city, that he would refound the people of God there, that he would build the temple again and allow sacrifices to God to be offered again. Now this is, on one hand, a magnificent prayer. This is a God-sized prayer. No one but God could jump in and tell the Persian Empire what to do. Somebody had to do that if the people were going to get back. And so Daniel goes to the top. He says, God, you can do this. Bring us home. Would you? I don't know how. He doesn't, he doesn't deign to tell God how. He just asks that God do it. Bring your people back to Jerusalem. Restore the city. Restore the temple. And do it for your name's sake. It's a God-sized prayer, but... I want to point out it's also a limited prayer in the sense that, God, that Daniel is praying for the people of God at that time in world history. He doesn't have a historic view. He's not thinking about 500 years later. He's thinking about the people of God right then and praying for forgiveness right then. And as we will see, God's answer, he not only answers Daniel's prayer, but his, his answer overflows the banks of Daniel's original prayer and sweeps across the plains of history. And God steps in and answers Daniel's prayer in such a way that it's still resonating and reverberating today in what we experience. And so let's turn now to the precious and very great promises that God reveals through His angel to Daniel. Follow along with me. I'm going to pick up in verse 20 and read to the end. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. I love that phrase. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And here it is. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be 
seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. God's Word. And if you're just joining us, welcome to Apocalyptic Literature. Uh, the second half of the book of Daniel speaks in such terms over and over. And we're going to seek to understand what God was saying in this unique way of writing. So it begins, 70 weeks are decreed. And immediately we are confronted with a number of questions. A question that you probably don't have yet, but in a sense should. The word week is not even in the original language. Uh, if we just translated it woodenly, it would be 77s are decreed. Now you can understand why they went to weeks, because a, a seven-day period is weeks. So that's fine. We'll talk about them in terms of weeks. The, the, the downside of that is that it gives a fixed period of time in our minds. A week is a fixed period of time. And, and this is clearly not talking about a number of weeks. And so most interpreters then will say, well, these 70 weeks are really, uh, really 70 weeks of years. 70 groups of seven years. This actually gets us closer to the time period of the vision. By the way, 70 groups of seven would be 490 years. All right? So that gives us a better feel for how long this is talking about. But again, I don't prefer to use the word years because that makes us think that we're reading a newspaper and that we should expect a certain chronology of years, which is not how, apoca which is not how apocalyptic literature tends to work. Remember, we've talked about this the last few weeks, but our, our first instinct when we're dealing with this kind of writing is should be to interpret it symbolically rather than from a newspaper perspective. So, what in the world? What is this 70 weeks? Well, a couple things that may be helpful as we think about the numbers here. So first of all, the, the number seven is throughout apocalyptic literature kind of the number of perfection or completion. Right? I think this just has its roots back in the days of creation, right? seeing a, the, the, the full week of creation. right? And so the prophets took that and said, all right, so we're going to use the number seven as a kind of perfection or completion. So you take that number seven and you multiply it by ten to get seventy. The number ten is very similar. It's this number of fullness. And so when you get seven times ten giving us seventy, this is a, a full and complete period of time. It is better for us to see this as a full and complete period of time rather than a specific number of years. You can be sure people have tried to map the 490 years onto this period of time. Um, it's possible, but it feels to me like you're really arm-wrestling history to get it to fit precisely. 
So, a full period of time. So we have 70 groups of seven. My goodness, there's a lot of... We got a seven times a ten, and then another seven. This is like the perfect period of time that God has designed to bring His work to completion. I'm going to do it just on time. Daniel. Okay. But then the timing gets subdivided and into three different groups. So I'm going to briefly go over each one. The first is a group of seven weeks. All right, so the first is in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. This is seven of the 70. We're now, you know, got the 70. We've moved seven weeks in to that 70. So what is, what is the interpretation of what, what is going to happen? Well, this is, the, this is the restoration of Jerusalem, to restore and build Jerusalem. And what, what the Lord is telling Daniel is, listen, that word's going to go out, and then it's going to take a while before Jerusalem actually gets restored. And, and at this point, if you, if you are, I hope you don't sit here and think, wow, you know, I'm so glad I have Ken because he can tell me what God's word means. I'm, my, my hope is that you can see what God's word means as you read it. Part of what I'm bringing to bear, though, is history. So I'm, I'm going to fill you in on, on the history of what actually happened here. You can read the history of the restoration of Jerusalem in Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you've read those books, you know it was not easy. It took time. There was opposition and anger. There was fighting and backbiting. There was all kinds of difficulty, and it took forever for them to finally get Jerusalem with its walls rebuilt and the temple restored and a high priest anointed and giving sacrifices once again. And so God is giving warning in advance that there will be a period of time. The first verses of the book of Ezra talk about the decree that came out. King Cyrus, the Persian king, made a decree to restore Jerusalem. Do you know how amazing this is? King Cyrus made a decree telling all the Jews throughout the empire, y'all can go home now. We're reversing course on almost 70 years of history. Y'all can go back home. And when you go home, I want you to rebuild the temple and we'll pay for it. That's an answer to Daniel's prayer right there. That's amazing. And the Lord's preparing Daniel to say, yep, that's going to happen, but, but be prepared. It's going to take a while. There's going to be opposition and it's going to take a while before you can anoint this high priest to give offerings again. That's the first seven weeks. Now, the second period of time is much longer. begins at the end of verse 25. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled times. So this describes a period of time much longer than the rebuilding of Jerusalem, where Jerusalem has been rebuilt, and temple sacrifices are happening, and the people of God are in the land, but the times will be troubled. Daniel, don't expect it to be perfect. We're going to get back to the land. It will not be perfect. It's going to be troubled times. And with the lens of history, we can say, indeed, it was. They got back, and we're still under the Persian Empire. 
and then the Persian Empire was destroyed by Alexander the Great as he came through. So then they had to get used to the, to the Greeks. But then Alexander died at the height of his power, divided things up among four generals. One general takes over Judea, but a little bit later, another general fights him and retakes over Judea. So they're just being tossed back and forth. And then if you were here last week, we read about one of the descendants of one of those generals rising to power, the great persecutor of the Jews, Antiochus Epiphanes, who would desecrate the temple and slaughter God's people. Difficult times. Finally, the Greek Empire was swept away by the Romans as they came through the Middle East, sweeping away one, but enforcing their will, iron as it was upon the people of God. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know how by the time Christ came, God's people are languishing under the Romans, crying out, how long, O Lord? How long will we be under the heel of the nations? This is that 62-week period that Daniel predicts. Brings us to the last period of time. If you're counting, there's more math in this chapter. If you're counting, we had a seven-week period and then a 62-week period. Add those up. That's 69 of the 70 weeks. There's one week to go. And that's what we get in verse 26 and 27. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Daniel looks ahead to a relatively brief period of time towards the end of the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. And he sees two main events here. I'm going to talk about one and then the other. The first, which probably jumps out to you if you can, if you can see what's going on, is the destruction of Jerusalem. This is remarkable. Because right now, as Daniel's receiving this, Jerusalem is destroyed. It lays in ruins. God answers Daniel's prayer and says, yep, I'm going to repopulate Jerusalem. It's going to get rebuilt. It'll be in troubled times. Oh, and then it's going to get destroyed again. And this happened historically as the Roman ruler Titus Vespasian came through with his conquering armies in the year 70 AD. Brings judgment upon God's city. It's clear that it's judgment, right? Like it will come like a flood. And we're meant to think of Noah and the flood. And the suddenness of judgment coming upon God's people. Desolations are decreed, God says, all these years before 70 AD. I already see their sins. And I've already decreed an end to that city. The sacrifices in the temple will be stopped. An abomination will again happen to the temple until the Lord brings it to a conclusion the end of verse 27, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, that is, the one who had desolated the temple and God stops the Roman ruler at the end. This is an incredible vision that Daniel had. There's no way he understood it, <laughs> right? 
I mean, there's no way we understand it if we don't have the benefit of, of hindsight. We can look back with history, the majority of which is biblical history. We've got Ezra. We've got Nehemiah. We know what it was like at Christ's time. We, we know all of these details. So we can look back and, and with some confidence say, yes, this is what's happening. But as Daniel was peering ahead at history, he must have just been overwhelmed to try to understand what is this that the, that the angel is declaring to him. There's one other detail in that final week of the vision that we need to see, and it's in verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Do you know what the Hebrew word for anointed one is? Messiah. Messiah. Now, it doesn't mean that every time you see anointed one in the Old Testament, it's necessarily referring to Jesus. It could refer to anyone anointed. Typically, high priests were anointed unto their office and kings anointed into their office. So I, we're not done just because we see that one word saying this must refer to Jesus, but it is certainly compelling that here, at the end of the 62 weeks, that's long period of languishing under the empires, and right before Jerusalem falls, there will come an anointed one who will be cut off. This refers to Jesus Christ. He is cut off. Makes us think, perhaps, of the words from Isaiah as he, as he looks from his vantage point ahead at the coming Messiah in Isaiah 53 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Cut off, cut short, a life ended, crucified. Here we have a glimpse of the crucifixion of Christ in Daniel chapter 9. It said he would be cut off and that he would have nothing. And here is Christ, his freedom taken away, his dignity denied him, justice stripped from him. As he heads to the cross, his very clothing is taken and sold. His friends all abandon him. He has nothing at the end, so much so that at the very end he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even that closeness to God is taken. And he has nothing. Why? why? Why is this happening? Why will the anointed one go through this? Because God is answering Daniel's prayer. That's why. Because Daniel had pleaded for mercy. And God answered big on his prayer. Grant us mercy for your sake, O Lord. Let your face shine upon us, O Lord. And Daniel had this little scope to his prayer. And God said, yes, like this. And made an eternal scope to his answer to Daniel's prayer. And so we get finally to the precious and very great promises of God held in Daniel 9, especially verse 24. Why will this anointed one be cut off? 
Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to, to, to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Here's God's plan over these 70 weeks. It's, it's not, friends, it's not about counting the weeks. It's about looking at God's plan. Here's God's plan. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to finish transgression. It will be fully paid for. This is what Daniel prayed about. He said, God, at some point, can we be done paying for our own sins and come back to Jerusalem? But we know we're not righteous enough, so do it for your sake, O Lord. And, and the Lord says, yes, I will grant that, and I will grant that for all of my people for all time. I am going to finish transgression. And we will be free from the debt that our sin has put us in because of what God was doing during these 70 weeks of time. God acts to finish transgression in the crucifixion of Christ. And then, the next one, finish transgression, and to put an end to sin. Finally, an end to sin. Its power over God's people will be broken. Its grip on God's people will be ended. And, and setting up the day when even the presence of sin among God's people is gone forever. This is a good and precious promise. The Messiah, the anointed one, would be cut off. And in being cut off, he would cut off sin from God's people. So, God would finish transgression, put an end to sin, and then atone for iniquity. To atone is to bring together two estranged parties. We tend to think of sin, and, and we're right, as guilt. We tend to think of it as deserving of God's judgment, and we're right, it does. But the other piece that is the worst of it is that it alienates us from God. Our sin alienates us from God, and God from us. For He is opposed to us in our sin, even as we are opposed to Him in our sin. We hate righteousness, and God hates sin. And that is a problem for us. When you hear the word atonement, if you think of the, think of the spelling of the word atonement, right? Atonement. Can you kind of see it in your head? All right. I'm going to break the word down kind of bizarrely. If you break it down, it could be at one meant. At one meant. What is atonement? It is making one. Two peoples that were separated and apart. When Christ comes and is cut off from his people and cries out with nothing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is so that his people who were forsaken, are now welcomed in by God. And what was estranged is now made one again. So sin is atoned for. This list is incredible. Finish transgression, put it in sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness. Oh, how good this is. It's everlasting. It endures. It sticks around. It's a solid foundation. If you've read your Old Testament... 
here's, here's how it goes, all right? Here's the whole Old Testament. God's people. They sin. God judges them. They repent. God restores them. Repeat. They sin. He judges them. They repent. He restores them. Repeat. They sin. This is it. Over and over and over and over. It is sad to read thousands of years of history of people who cannot be righteous before a holy God. And every time He gives them some respite, they use it for their own selfishness and to turn away from Him. And here He promises something new. Not a temporary righteousness. An everlasting righteousness. And this righteousness, this isn't like them finally figuring it out and being good enough. This is something God is doing. God is bringing righteousness. You don't have it. I'm going to bring it. I'm going to give you righteousness. I'm going to send my own son to live a perfect life and accumulate before me the righteousness that I require. And he's going to take that as bread offered and pass it around. So that all of my people can be righteous before me. Everlasting righteousness. And then it says, to seal both vision and profit. It's probably the hardest phrase to get. But when you seal like a scroll, that is to say, this is done. The scroll is completed. It's, it's finished. And in the coming of Christ, He is, he is at one time the, the fulfillment of the scroll. The one who comes in fulfillment of all that the prophets, the visions had foretold. And he's also the last word from God. This, this is my son. Listen to him. You've heard the prophets. Now listen to my son. The great and final word from God would come through Christ. And last, to anoint a holy place, a most holy place. The city of Jerusalem had been the holy place. Daniel had been praying for that place. And God had promised to bring the people back to that place, but then He had said, nevertheless, desolations are still decreed against that place. But there's another place that I'm going to anoint. Another, another people, not the earthly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. The people of God who are going to be forever His are going to be anointed as His new dwelling place during this Daniel's 70 weeks. These are precious and very great promises. Are you surprised to find these here in Daniel chapter 9? I have to confess, I was blown away as I was reading this. The massive nature of verse 24. This is a memorize and keep in your pocket kind of verse describing what Christ came to do for His people. Daniel asked God, for the moon? And God said, sure, and gave him the universe of his wealth and promises. The treasury, the crown jewels of the empire, all that we need for life and godliness is found here. God's vault. So, back to our question. How do we get from God's vault to us? Where's the ATM? Where's the ATM? What's the means by which these precious and very great promises come to real people? 
I'll say real people who are Christians and, and those who are not yet Christians. How do you get these promises of God for you? It is, it is through the one described in verse 26. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. How does the eternal life that God would give His people come to His people? Through one who experienced death and was cut off for His people. How do these riches come to His people? Through the one who died with nothing that we could have the riches of God. Now, Christ alone is the means. Christ alone is the way to all the riches that God has for us. The, the connection between sort of the wealth of heaven and, and our lives. But that's not quite enough to say. It's true. What I just said is true, but it just misses the main point, I think. It is not enough to say that Christ is the means to the treasures of heaven. Christ is the treasures of heaven. Within him are all the promises of God. It's not like they exist over there, and here's Christ over here bringing us to them. They are him. The promises of God are ours in Jesus. You cannot have the promises of God without clinging to Jesus. And if you're clinging to Jesus, you have all the promises of God. Because they are all ours in this one, the anointed one who was anointed for this, who was cut off for this, who, was, who died with nothing for this. He is not just the ATM card. He's the treasury that God has for you and for me. The righteousness of God for you. The eternal life for you. The forgiveness of all that you've done. So listen, if, if, if you've not turned to the Lord, turn to Him this morning. These, these things that we're talking about, way back here in the the book of Daniel, these are written for our instruction, for your encouragement, so that perhaps you, for the first time, could hear what does it mean to be a Christian. It does not have anything to do with becoming who you need to be. It has much more to do with it, just admitting who you are and coming in your poverty to the one who is rich and saying, I'm poor. Do you have something for me? If you haven't done that, do that this morning. Friend, do that this morning. Look to the one who is rich, who became poor that he could give his riches, all of these to you. And church, let us keep looking to this one. Let us keep clinging to this one. How do you make a withdrawal for more grace for this life, there is one place for us to go, and that is to Christ over and over and over again. He is what we need, and if we have Him, we have all the wealth of heaven at our disposal. So all the precious and very great promises of God are ours in Christ. So let's cling to Him.
from this day until that last day when we see him. Worship team. Let's stand together, church. Let's pray. Lord, if there's anyone here right now who has not does not know the riches of Christ, I pray that they might pray heartfelt to you. God, I'm poor. Would you make me rich? God, I'm a sinner. Would you make me righteous? God, would you forgive me? I see that you died for me. Would you help me to know you? Friend, if that is your heart, that's what it means to become a Christian. That's, that's what it means to come to know God. In church right now, we just pray that if anyone here, Holy Spirit, be at work and draw sinners to yourself. And Lord, for the rest who are tempted at times to be tired and discouraged to see the weight of the world on our shoulders and the sin still that clings so closely in our hearts. Help us lift our eyes afresh to you, to the one who is all the promises of God. Thank you, Jesus. Help us fix our eyes on you afresh in your name. Amen.